0: As you come into this space today, we acknowledge the land that we stand on. Today, we stand on Bonorong Country of the Kulin Nations. You stand on a country that is unknown to us, but is known to you. We acknowledge the elders of your country and the elders of this country, past, present, and importantly, the future generation to come. We acknowledge that today is a day for you to learn, to listen, but also to think about where you're from and where would you like to go. We welcome you to this country to this chance to learn of knowledge
1: this is a yarn with our elders presented by bendigo bank a podcast where we sit down have a yarn and get to know some of our first nation's elders i'm your host simone sexton In each episode of this short NAIDOC Week series, we sit down with an elder for a yarn. They share with us their knowledge and deep wisdom of country, cultures and reconciliation. It's time to listen intently and respectfully as we learn from our past and head towards a brighter future for all Australians.
0: In today's episode, we hear from Uncle Shane Charles, an academic, government advisor proud Wurundjeri and Bonorong man and a Yorta Yorta elder. He's ready to share his knowledge on kingship and the importance of elders past, present and future. We will learn about the profound connection we have with our country, how family structures work in First Nations communities and how we can all help pave the way towards a reconciled Australia. So let's jump in and listen to the timeless wisdom of Uncle Shane Charles.
1: Today, I'm here with Elder Uncle Shane Charles. Uncle Shane, for our listeners, would you like to introduce yourself and share a little bit about yourself this morning?
2: Yeah, look, thanks, Simone. Yeah, before I speak, I must pay my respects to my elders, of the past, who have paved the way for the present, who are paving the way for a new future. Yeah, I'm a or Oorundry and Yorta Yorta man. Grew up in Shepparton, last family to move off the riverbank. But um, yeah, I guess I've been lucky enough to be gifted knowledge from three of those traditional owner groups.
1: So, Uncle Shane, can you tell me, as an elder, what is the role of an elder and why is the role so important within our culture and our communities?
2: Look, I guess, you know, when you look at the culture and how, you know, that first law is respect and was always for the elders and, you know, those that have that knowledge and wisdom and, and they're the anchor. For our for our peoples, and you know the wise words, and I guess being an elder is that you hold yourself in every space, uh, and that you're there for for all community to I guess bless. People coming on the country, but also you know the other parts of an elder is being that elder support right across the community, so it is if you look at it traditionally, it was that council of elders evenly with men and women. My culture women owned law, so they were, men administered it so it's you know it still comes from that ancient law that we have and and you look at it in today 's society that it is you know, I guess a changing role uh, and it's a diverse role when you look at it through through the cultural lens right around the country in terms of that diversity we have. But, you know, the underlying thing of being an elder was that you were there to support community holistically and also, you know, giving those that knowledge and wisdom about looking after Mother Earth as well and it goes to hand in hand.
1: And I just want to touch on something you just said there as well and I don't think a lot of people would realise who are listening that our women in our communities actually do hold quite a bit of a responsibility when it comes to our law and caregiving and culture. So we play such an important role as much, as you said, as the the men do. Mm,
2: Yes, definitely. And it was, I guess, grew up, when I was growing up, my, my dad said, he said, son, I'm afraid of no man but there are some women in our community that were very, very strong. And then you look at the times too in terms of the colonisation, you know, my dad said, you know, we had to sort of move away to stop, you know, the the ramifications of men being in the space. But that was the first thing, they removed the men when they could and it was that strong women base that really sort of came together and, you know, supported the journey that we're on now.
1: So how does one become an elder uncle? Well, <laughs>
2: That's an interesting question because I went to a place called Onabella many years ago, traveling uh, with a cultural group, and had some conversations with some young people. And, and I guess through that initiation process, you were constantly observed in terms of how you held yourself, how you respected not only yourself but everything and everyone, and that you know you were always in that that frame of mind of support, right? and that you know at certain times when you go through those initiations where you're gifted knowledge at the right time, then you would aspire to become a part of the elders group, I guess, or, you know, the Council of Elders, as we say. So I guess today, you know, we're, we're so fragmented across our communities in terms of our culture and knowledge because of that colonisation journey. But it's, you know, I guess it's sort of around the ages of 50, I guess, seems to be. But I spoke to a young fellow who was 11 years of age, been through initiation, and he was classed as an elder because of his knowledge and his wisdom.
1: Wow, that's amazing. And it's very, very different, isn't it? You know, oh, totally. I guess our kinship structure so can you tell me does the initiation of becoming an elder does that differ from mom to mom oh
2: absolutely very diverse very diverse in, in practice and this is, you know, I guess we've been all put in the same basket as being all the same but we're not, we're, this diversity is profound amongst us. So, you know, we have that cultural law but then it's administered and it's, it's controlled, um, you know, knowledge is controlled, relationships are controlled where you're gifted things at the right time when you're able to handle, you know, spirits are able to handle it.
1: Uncle, can you share with me perhaps a piece of wisdom or a story that has been bestowed to you from an elder?
2: Oh, yes, I have many, I guess, and I've been blessed that, you know, and Caroline tells me I'm the last of the great teachings of all the elders that I've been taught by, and that's not just here in my country, but it's nationally in the work I've done. I guess it was something that was sort of bestowed on me. I'm still coming to terms with Uncle, I think. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> being Being only young, and I'm, I'm probably, I don't see myself as a senior elder, I see myself as an emerging elder. And, yeah, more recently, uh, probably in the way that I am and my cultural knowledge and wisdom has gifted me that opportunity to stand up as an elder in in my communities and that it's, uh, you know, something we all should aspire to. Now, I've been taught all the creation stories that we have, but I guess the one that really stands out for me is that, well, there's two, the ones about the creation story of the river, how Bunjil the eagle sent a woman on a journey down to the flat country to, to find food. She dragged her digging stick and then he sent the serpent to look after her and, of course, the serpent followed the digging stick mark in the ground and then Bunjil with a clap of thunder sent the rain. And, yeah, that became the river. But there's another one on my Yorta Yorta country and it talks about, and it's about 28,000 years old, and it talks about, which we had one last night, the earthquake. Did you feel that? Any of you guys feel that? That no. was. That woke me up. <laughs> And the last time it happened, I was, yeah, still where I am there in in Turak and I just had this thought, well, the last earthquake we had before one last night was 28,000 years ago where the earth rose up 200 feet and it forced all my people up onto the sand ridges that arose out of that and because all the water rose up, so my elders had to walk along to find a place to actually let the water through. So they chose a spot under consensus and they dug out the side of the sand ridge and let the water through and then that became the course of the river today. So, you know, my being out on country, you know, we'd go to places and my grandfather'd say, this is where the old river used to run, you know. So there's amazing storylines. 20 years of taking Melbourne University students out and walking that storyline is life-changing for them because they get to see this beautiful, rich, oldest living culture on the planet. In all its glory because they feel it. You know, they can see the evidence. They can they actually can feel country. So that's, you know, I guess been my role to be able to, you know, to take people out on country and show them this beautiful cultural lens, not the deficit lens.
1: Yeah, and you know, it's really interesting to hear story and to walk those song lines of the past. It's such a profound moment to walk on country.
2: Oh look, it is, and you know it gifts me so much. You can hear it in the wind that talks to you. That water and the sap in the trees runs through my veins. My heart's encased in clay that connects me to Mother Earth. That spiritual connection, and and you know when people get that understanding through the cultural lens and not the deficit lens, it's a whole new world for them.
1: Sure is, and and when you do this, you know sharing that story on country to people, how much has that landscape changed? you know, from when the stories began to where it is now? Oh, drastically. How, how much has it changed?
2: Drastically changed, I guess. But the one thing that we have as mob is resilience and the one thing Mother Earth has is resilience. So I guess some of the work we did was research and it was research about country and how it informs us, you know, how each animal on each plant is a message for something. It tells you what's happening and what's going to happen. Way back when I was living out in Lilydale and there was... The day before the Black Saturday fires, and I'm looking around, I'm thinking, there's a deathly silence. All the birds are gone. Next day, Black Saturday hit... So I went and rang an uncle. I said, what's going on? He said, oh, something big's going to happen. And sure enough. And it took two months for those birds to come back. So this paying attention to the detail was our lens, this cultural lens we had on it. Because Nan said, it's a rolling movie. It's telling you what's going on. It's telling you what's going to happen. Days before the tsunami, all the crabs called out the seas the day before. So all the local people went to high ground days before the earthquakes, you know, all those hundreds of thousands of pigeons were gone from the squares. So they're the barometers of what's happening and what's going to happen, country, and that's this beautiful lens that you see. You see a whole depth. They talk about deep listening, but you can't have deep listening without deep feeling. And when you feel it, it's, that's the change, you know, people. Wow, I've never... You know, talk about the spirit of this country. They've got no idea what that is.
1: What kind of advice can we give Australians to listen to the land and be more connected and perhaps, I guess, read those details. How can we as Australians do better when it comes to country?
2: And I guess it's about that understanding and that's one of the things Uncle Beach Cooper talks about. He said, you know, we're the most misunderstood peoples if you understand us, if you connect with, with, you know, who we are and what we see and that spirit of it, it is, you know, that life-changing thing where, you know, and I talk about cultural intelligence. There's two things. It's either cultural intelligence or cultural destruction. (laughs) (laughs) You know, but when I step on country, as I say to people, I feel this warmth come up the left side, the feminine side of my body, and then that's Mother Earth just. It's like a grandmother's hug. It really is. And then I can just feel it drain all the worry off my spirit. Mm-hmm. And then I, I be there five minutes and walk away like I feeling like I've had a three hour massage you know and that's that's that feeling and science is catching up with us to say that you know you spend more time outdoors, it helps rejuvenate your immune system while well, country is healing, but when country is sick, so is my spirit, and at the end of the day, our mother is going to outlive us all and that she will start to claim it back. And we've seen that globally based around the fires, the floods, everything. And we have to change our ways. Yeah. I'm part of a movement called Regeneration and how they're looking at the oldest knowledge and wisdom on the planet to help rejuvenate country and, and change our ways. So an example of that is in WA where they work with one of the local communities with the problems of the salt and the salt ponds. So they regenerated parts of it. And within six months it turned back to fresh water. And wow, that's and if amazing. you put one thing back, all these other things come, you know, and that's the work I tried to do at City of Melbourne for four years was to build a cultural overlay where people learn. Every space you walk, you learn something. So where's the narrative? Where's the the plant, the, the bush tucker beds that people will see that and, and read a little plaque that says, Oh, this is medicinal, this is nutritional and then oh, well, you know, it changes people because oh, I thought there was a weed. But yet if I ate it, it might be good for me, you know. But how that transfer of knowledge is through seeing, through being in a space. And, you know, you can't have the space without a narrative for people to learn. So that's, I guess, been my journey. And I just opened a, a park in Kerry Street in St Albans on Saturday and they've been working with, you know, local mob there. And, yeah, it's phase one of a project, so now we're going to put the QR code with the plants and then you'll be able to, you know, punch up all the information about that plant because it just isn't a plant. And you can't put one little... Only plant there. You have got to put all the host ones there. But when you put the host ones there, then the insects come, the birds come, and and that you know that ripple effect. I guess so. You know we're in the space now of these greening spaces within you know local government and within country and and how we're using different resources. So they're making out of the seaweed, they're making planks and boards and all sorts of magical stuff. And the kelp, you know, our mob are, are farming that. And, and, you know, it's being used for all sorts of things. And what what happened over there in WA was that they co-designed it. They sat together at the table and said, well, okay, this is our knowledge, this is your knowledge, let's work together on a project. And out of that flourished, you know, some unbelievable results. So, you know, that's only one example.
1: <laughs> but I see that actually becoming more and more widespread across our varying communities, is a lot of these regeneration projects working with community to regenerate country. I'm loving that. And as you said, it is a, it's a trickle effect how much it brings back the wildlife and the ecological balance of nature.
2: Oh, definitely. And you hit the nail on the head about returning the balance. And we see country as being sick. So country's broken we can fix it, you know, we can bring it back, we can get it to a point where it is sustainable, you know, and the environment is thriving. As a young boy, you know, I was very excited and everything and asking, the, and, shut up, listen, just sit for hours and hours. First thing I'm teaching you is patience. <laughs> Second thing I'm teaching you is to be able to see the things you can't and then, you know, hear the things you can't, mm. and feel the things you can't. So it is an unbelievable transfer when you, you know, I look back over my journey, but it's a lifelong journey, yeah. I'll continue to learn about who I am until the day
1: I die, my grandmother taught me, so. Just touching on what you said, being still. Yes. It's probably one of the hardest things to be and to do. That's where that connection comes in, by being still.
2: Well, you know, we don't take the time out.
1: Because country will speak to you.
2: Yeah, it always you speaks just to you. You to <laughs> us last still. night, so.
1: <laughs> Uncle, I just want to take you back. We mentioned earlier about how different Western family structure is in its design and what role an elder plays in that kinship structure. Mm. Can you enlighten us a little bit on that? Well,
2: you know, when you look at that, the westernised structure, it doesn't fit within us. You know, It doesn't. It puts you in a box. And, you know, look at our elders. I mean, they were the keepers of the knowledge. You know, our painters were the keepers of the knowledge. You know, our dancers dance that knowledge. Our singers sung that knowledge, right? But yet that whole pedagogy and how we learn, you don't see that in society. When you talk about kinship, you know, it's respect for self, family and extended family and, more importantly, country. So it's not just, you know, your little nucleus of family, friends and everything else. It's a bigger lens and a bigger responsibility.
1: Yeah, our cousins are Mm -hmm. our brothers and sisters. Mm You know, so we have such a very large extended family through this kinship law Mm. and a very real community responsibility when it comes to very important ceremonies like sorry Business. I always think it's really interesting in the role an elder plays within the community kinship.
2: Mm. Yeah, with that knowledge and wisdom and, and knowing, you know, the knowing of knowledge and the knowing of who's who. You, know, you come into my community, uh, who are you, where are you from? Who's your mob? Oh, do you know Aunty? Dunn? Yeah, that's my... Co- oh, well, your family.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> no, all of a sudden that link to your, your extended family, you know, yeah, we, you have not all the rights but you have, you know, a connection here.
1: Given today's day and age, how has the role of an elder had to pivot or change to keep the youth of the community engaged in culture.
2: And that's, you know, we've got these two worlds we have to walk in, where you walk in our world and then you've got to walk in, you know, this everyday colonial world. So I guess the work that I've done is, you know, and I've been taught to be able to walk in both worlds and see things from both sides of the fence and, and be open and honest and transparent and all those things, that it was challenging it's a big cultural load but i've seen that elevation of respect for our elders and you know the acknowledgements that uh, organizations and corporate and government are doing through reconciliation uh, you know is is transferring that that respect so, you know, we get an elder to come and do a welcome, or, you know, we acknowledge because we're committed to supporting reconciliation and the movement of, you know, coming together as a nation and understanding each other. And, you know, I've got 148 cultural groups who are abiding for time with our elders. And so, yeah, that demand is, is a big cultural load for some.
1: When we talk about elders' past, when we do an acknowledgement <laughs> or a welcome to country, what are some of the learnings from the past, Uncle? Well, it's looking
2: at that journey. Firstly, it's a cultural foundational knowledge. And, you know, I use that as my solid foundation to, to walk in both worlds. And then how, whatever I do, wherever I go, I still have to have this cultural lens here. So we're trying to, I guess, blend that together and give that understanding to corporate and to, you know, to businesses and all sorts. Yeah, well, this is protocols. This is what I have to do. You should be doing the same. So, it's, you know, passing on that protocol, you know, the cultural safety, all of those things that matter, I guess, in this contemporary life that we live, that is, is you know, they're the mechanisms for making change.
1: And so... I know that we were just talking about traversing in both worlds and it can be quite challenging, for, particularly for our young people and also for those mob who are still exploring their cultural heritage. How do we try and keep our young people focused on becoming trailblazers of the future? How do they find that balance, do you think? Well,
2: I guess, you know, I I was lucky enough to run Pathways for youth for four or five years you know one of the first foundations I needed to build with these young kids is their knowledge you know because whether they were removed from families or you know their parents didn't know you know all sorts of you know all the, the I guess the, when you look at the closing the gap all of those determinants and so I really needed to ground them first in who they were and where they came from once the knowing of who they were and where they came from you know as my grandmother said if you don't know who you are and where you come from how do you know where you're going but then be able to provide the pathway for them and support so so bless Annie Dot Peters, she was my elder in residence in the program. So, you know, she was the go-to person. They just wanted to sit down and have a yarn and have a cup of tea and it was as simple as that, but how we support them, how we bring family in to support them, you know, and, and you know, if the family needs support too in other ways. So it was, you know, that whole networking of how we operate, I guess, in our communities where, you know, it's not just, This one department, well, you know, there's a number all heading in the same direction, but how can we bring them to the same table to provide bigger supports for our community? But also, you know, we must And Uncle Doug Nichols. And I remember as a kid growing up, used to come and pick Nan up and go to church, you know, one of the great elders, you know, and he always said, you know, we must teach our children who they are and where they come from. Mm. But we also must teach them the ways of society and how they function, but how we take our place from the past to the present to the future.
1: I think you just summed that up beautifully because it really is about identity, connecting to one's identity and feeling grounded in that identity. I think that is, as you just said, is the key to keeping our youth on track and keeping them engaged and focused and future forward.
2: Mm, definitely. And I, yeah, look, I, you know, I was flexible with my well, my boss, <laughs> my manager was Mortified when I, when I told her this. I said, no, no. I said, we're not sitting in a classroom writing. I said, we're going to take them out fishing. But they're meant to be doing work. I said, we will be. But it was that transfer of knowledge out on country where it's a whole different learning space. You see, the ch- you see them grow with pride and identity and, oh, wow, you know, we're out, outdoors being blackfellas, you know. <laughs> <laughs> And then you know I saw that how that transferred. Once once you rose them up and, and provided that platform where they're growing in knowledge and growing in just in themselves, their spirit is, you know, not like this, you know, shoulders sort of rolled over and not knowing anything, don't want to do anything, but it just changed them. And it was that, you know, way of learning and teaching that you injected into, you know, this education system that not designed for us. <laughs>
1: oh, that is wonderful. So, Unc, as an elder, what does reconciliation mean to you? And how, as an elder, do you feel you can influence or have influenced meaningful change?
2: I was always taught that reconciliation is a fellow business, but my parents, my, my dad, <laughs> my uncles and aunties and grandparents, and that, you know, it's an opportunity. And when you look at the three pillars of reconciliation, it's uh, respect first and foremost and it's about relationships, and it's about opportunities. So as co-chair of Reconciliation Victoria, (laughs) I wear that hat. And, uh, you know, being a part of Reconciliation, well, we're in 21 years at the grassroots, from the grassroots right through to to corporate and government. And I sort of thought, well, okay, there was an opportunity for me to sit in as co-chair and inject, I guess, um, you know, that cultural lens and cultural thinking, but also the knowledge that I have acquired and how, you know, it's quite easy to build relationships, you know, beyond just ticking a box, you know, beyond doing meaningful, you know, reconciliation where we do come together and we do understand each other. We have 90% of the country who is for reconciliation but don't know how to go about
1: it. Yeah. Yeah, and you're right. That framework is important. I mean, it's all about taking the time to learn, So that framework certainly helps organisations particularly set up basic understanding and what does it mean to connect with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and how then can we move forward together. So I feel it's important that you being a part of Reconciliation Victoria You know, how have you seen the landscape in Victoria change in terms of organisations and reconciliation action plans?
2: Oh, look, getting hammered by over 148 multicultural groups want to sign up for reconciliation. But also they see the framework and, they, you know, the African community want us to take it to Africa and use that framework. To be able to build relationships and build understanding and respect and all those things. So, and in the education space, has gone viral. Our is the education piece from the reconciliation space. I mean, I've got all the local schools all putting their hand up and wanting to make a difference, and they've got kids as you know ambassadors, you know, in their schools driving the plan. It's quite beautiful to watch. So, it has that potential to really connect in on on a whole different way. And and this is where reconciliation is not indigenous Australians, you share your intelligence, you share your experiences, good, bad or otherwise, and how we come to a point of understanding based around, you know, the knowledge that is shared within the room, based around our culture and based around communities, you know, connecting in with local people, you know, has been um, really elevated in, in the education space.
1: So, you know... We have this opportunity coming up in October, November for a referendum around the Uluru Statement of the Heart and the voice, voice to government. Could you share for us in simple terms what the voice means and why is it important?
2: Let me take you back to the last referendum. Before the referendum, I was born before the referendum, so I was born a non-human. And then we asked the country... Um, that we wanted to be counted, and they responded. Mm. And then I guess along that journey since we've had um the Sorry Day, we had the Prime Minister say sorry, so we've been waiting for, okay, well, what's the next step? The voice is a simple thing. It's, it's you know, to ask this nation, should First Peoples be represented in the Constitution? as simple as that. And what it creates is just an advisory role where, you know, for so long we've been dictated to, we've been told what to do and that we don't have a lot of saying to be able to fix the issues and problems within our community. But the voice isn't just for us. The voices for country, for the sustainability and the environment moving forward.
1: When we talk about self-determination for our people and to change that good intent to meaningful outcomes, and this is a way to be able to do that on a more permanent basis, would you say that reconciliation lies within the hands of our youth for it to really take hold?
2: Oh, it's already happening. You know, I mean, they're, you know, being so creative in that space. And, like, as an example, in some of the the kindergartens, they're talking about the Stolen Generation because the kids get it. You know, they're having the hard conversations but they're singing in language. Yes. They're doing welcomes in, you know, the most profound thing where, you know, I have my friends ring me up and said, yeah, my son came home and he was singing, you know, this song in language, you know. Those were the most profound things you'd ever heard and how, you know, they're the allies of the future for change.
1: So true, (laughs) Uncle, because we actually had a beautiful primary school at the reconciliation launch for Bendigo Bank singing in Wurundjeri doing the acknowledgement. And Mm. it was so beautiful. I got so teary when I watched it. It was just. such an impact and so profound to see these little young ones up there singing in language. How wonderful is that?
2: Oh, look, it's awesome. And I guess, you know, I've seen this, you know, working with probably some of their parents at the corporate level, you know, and and there's these questions. And, you know, some some the parents have sort of said, you know, I know nothing. My child knows more. I said, well, they're... Ask your kid. It's
1: true. (laughs) Ask your kid. It's true. Yeah,
2: they'll tell you so much knowledge. And it's like they've got this thirst for it and they're like sponges and they want to do more. And I'm talking about creating spaces in schools and there's this thirst and it really is beautiful to watch.
1: Oh, that's wonderful, Uncle. So I guess our time has come to an end, Uncle. As much as I would love (laughs) to stay down with you forever. (laughs) (laughs) But before we wrap up, if there was – one piece of wisdom you could give people to finish this conversation today, what would that be?
2: Oh, there's probably a couple of things and it's you know, it's about arming yourself with this amazing knowledge that we have. It's you know, it's it's being able to share that because you never keep knowledge. That was my grandmother taught me, you never keep it. If you keep it it becomes useless. So if you learn something, you must pass that on and that transfer of knowledge through through the education system which transfers back into their families and community is, you know, something that I see just going viral, you know, and, and the more people that connect, you know. And, and it's it's that, you know, I guess knowledge that our children have that they're starting to listen to, I guess. <laughs> yeah, They come home from school and talk about this and, oh, okay, and it, you know, it plants a seed.
1: Well, that's awesome, Uncle. Um, Actually, I do want to ask one more thing right. before you go. I'm going to squeeze as much time out of you as possible. For the emerging elders out there, what piece of meaningful advice, you know, provide these young elders to be?
2: Well, it's, you know, you look at their journey and no doubt very diverse and very unique in terms of where they're at and, you know, where they've got to that point. But it's about, you know, remembering that an elder isn't a nine-to-five thing. (laughs) An elder is a twenty four seven responsibility. And you must always, you know, present as that. Well, it's not so much authority, but it's that beautiful knowledge and wisdom and be true to yourself, be true to your community and true to your family. You know, you must arm yourself with the knowledge from family and country, you know, to be able to elevate yourselves as a leader and, you know, talking with the young boys there this morning. You know, They've got 15 down at Melbourne Grammar and they're part of the AFL program and everything and and with you know, Robbie Armat down there. And, you know, I said, this is beautiful. Who would have thought there was 15 kids at Melbourne Grammar who were shifting and changing, you know, the space for just being there, you know, for just being there. And, you know, after it we had kids coming up and shaking our hands and, oh, that was, I've learned so much. So I said, well, share that knowledge. You know, we rely on you now to carry that and pass that on. So, but always, you know, remember, you know, that that cultural foundations of respect and, and like I said, uh, knowledge and uh, relationships and, you know, keeping being that strong presence of our elders from the past because, you know, it cannot die. If that dies, we all die.
1: thank you, Uncle. It's been an amazing journey to spend the time to chat with you and learn a little bit more about you. And I guess some of the key takeaways is to learn more, share, be respectful, connect to identity, connect to country and share and pass that knowledge on.
2: Yeah, yeah, totally. And you look at all the cultural groups. We have so many similarities in our culture, our morals, our values, you know, being able to come and, and take a piece of everything that you learn right, and, and ensure you pass it on, but that helped build you, build your spirit and resilience.
1: Thanks so much for today, Uncle. All good things must come to an end. Oh, so. unfortunately.
2: <laughs> Story of my life. We, we must sign <laughs> off. And... <laughs>
1: Yeah. And say goodbye. But thank you so much for your time, your energy, your honesty, and, you know, for taking the time to share your insights and story with us today and our listeners.
2: Oh, thank you. It's been a you know, great opportunity uh, uh, to come along and do that. And I'm looking forward to the next one.
1: Thank you for listening to A Yarn with Our Elders, presented by Bendigo Bank. This NAIDOC week, make sure to tune in to the stories, songs and gems of wisdom from every one of our elders on this short series and leave a review. If you'd like to learn more about Bendigo Bank's Reflect Reconciliation Action Plan, visit bendigobank.com.au.